Uh, good morning. How you doing, Kev? <laughs> so I'm Nate. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here. We're, we're kicking off this new series. So we're still doing the book of Matthew, right? Like we're working our way through the book of Matthew. Uh, this is a new series in the same book. This is the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to be working our way through the Sermon on the Mount for the next like eight or nine weeks. Uh, so this week is going to be kind of a kickoff week. Where we're going to talk about the Sermon on the Mount sort of as a whole, and then we're going to break it down sort of week by week as we work our way through it. Um, so this, the Sermon on the Mount is pretty famous, actually, right? Like, if anybody has to deal with, like, ethics in any part of the world, they have to deal with the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus is famous. And this is the largest chunk of ethical teaching that Jesus offers, right? So it's, like, one big chunk of this is how you're supposed to live your life. Uh, and so as we sort of work our way through it, we're going to see a lot of sort of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, um, so to start this off, I want to I wanna just go through it really quickly at a really high level in order to get like an orientation. Because I'm going to talk about some specific things that we're going to have to look for. And I want you to just be aware of sort of the overall vibe, I guess, of the Sermon on the Mount. So that as we talk through those things, that you're not like, but I don't know what Jesus actually was trying to say, right? So even though we're not going to cover it in depth, obviously, we're going to do that over the next few weeks. Um, I want to just kind of give a high level. Um, so starting off in Matthew chapter five, in verse one, it says this, it says, seeing the crowds, he being Jesus went up in the mountain and he sat down and his disciples came to him. So that's sort of the, the scene that, that Matthew paints for the, the teaching that Jesus gives the, the setup for the sermon on the Mount. It's a large number of people that are following Jesus, right? It's that's why they're on a mountain. So it's not the 12 disciples because the 12 disciples, you don't need to go to a mountain to have this conversation. You can do that pretty much anywhere. There's 12. It's, it's a much larger group than that. So it's people that are following Jesus at some level, but are not necessarily completely 1,000% sold out on following Jesus, right? Like they're disciples, but they're different kind of levels of, of disciple. And so Jesus is communicating at a, sort of a basic level, what does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to actually be a disciple of Jesus? What, what is the expectation of being a follower of Jesus? So we're gonna summarize this content um, and I would just recommend if you, you know, if Lakeside's your home church, if this is where you're going to be for the next couple months, you might want to just read through this a couple of times. Uh, it takes about 15 minutes to read through the Sermon on the Mount. I thought about just reading the whole thing, but that's a lot. Um, but like when you think about like your day, 15 minutes is not that much. If you've got a 20 minute drive to work, you can listen to this on your app and it's done about the time that you're there, right? So just think about that because there's, there's, there's a thought process that goes through this whole thing that if you listen to it or you read it sort of repeatedly, you get an understanding of what that flow is. So I would recommend you do that if you get the chance. Um, but just kind of breaking it down, uh, the first section of the Sermon on the Mount is the Beatitudes. That's the famous part. Mike's going to preach about that next week, so I'm not going to sort of break it down into little pieces. Um, but essentially the idea of that and then the rest of chapter 5. So chap Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, right? Like that's what he starts off with. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. And so that's kind of one of the, the ideas that kicks off the Sermon on the Mount. And then he, he goes through and he talks about how our attitudes, something like meekness, uh, are, are important for our holiness. It's not just the things that we do, it's the things that we think, it's the way that we process things, right? So then it's not just blessed are the meek, but also he talks about in, in verse 44, love your enemies. 
He doesn't say don't attack your enemies. He says love your enemies. Your internal attitude has to be one of love for people that don't like you, right? And then he wraps up chapter five or the ideas of chapter five in in verse 48. He says, therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, which is obviously a ridiculously impossible standard, right? Like none of us are perfect. None of us will get there. Um, but then we, he just keeps going because that's really only the opening section, right? So he moves into verse, into chapter six, and, and he says a lot of things about, you know, about prayer, about holiness, about how to live your life in relationship with God. Uh, we get a long section on the Lord's prayer, so we'll, we'll be teaching through that. And he says some things that are really hard for us to swallow, like in, in verse six, 15 of chapter six, he says, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. And you're like, oh man, like, that's so hard, like forgiving people, and that's how I know that God forgives me, like, uh. So we'll deal with that when we get to chapter six, but it's, it's hard, right? And in the second half of chapter six, he talks about wealth and security and how much we love things that we think give us security, even though maybe they don't really give us security, right? So in verse 21, the sort of famous verse, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be as well, right? So, so if I value things, that's what my focus is gonna be in life, right? Um, and then in, in verse 33, the very famous one, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And so you're like, okay, so if I focus on the kingdom of God, then suddenly there's a bunch of other stuff that, that processes off that logically. And chapter seven is, is really kind of all over the place. It's like scattershot stuff. But we still have a lot of things that we know that Jesus said and we're not necessarily sure of the context, right? So it says, ask and it'll be given to you. Seeking you'll find, knock and the door will be opened. Um, and so it's about sort of attitudes in how we approach God. Still, it's, it's a lot about the heart. It's a lot about what our focus is, right? And then again, another hard verse, verse, verse 21, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So you're like, so I can think that I'm worshiping Jesus, that he's the main priority, and that doesn't mean that I actually have a relationship with Jesus. That's a really hard thing to hear, and it's a really hard thing to sort of put into practice in my life. And so as we read through these highlights, just kind of some of the famous ones, what we realize is like, this is a lot. Like, I can't do this. This is impossible. There's no way that I can do all of these things. I could spend the rest of my life saying, I'm going to try and make my attitudes conform to the way that Jesus expects them to, and I'm still going to fail. And so if we're not hit by the fact that we're bad at this, as we start to move through this, we miss the point, (laughs) right? Like Jesus is not saying, this is what you have to do to earn heaven. If you approach the Sermon on the Mount as a checklist for you to achieve heaven, guys, you're going to hell. Like that's the only way that that you can approach this. There is no chance that we can actually accomplish all the things that are on this. And I say this on the front end because as we teach our way through this, there's gonna be a lot of things that you're gonna be like, that's impossible, I can't do that. Why are we even covering this? This is ridiculous. Bob Mount says it this way. The basic problem in interpreting the Sermon on the Mount on the Mount stems from the uncompromising quality of its demands and the loftiness of its ethic. There appears to be a great gap between what Jesus expects and what people, even at their best, can accomplish. So we can't achieve it. Why are we doing it then? <laughs> like why, why are we even looking at this if it's pointless, right? The Sermon on the Mount is an invitation from Jesus. It, it's, it's an invitation to follow him. 
And he says, this is what it looks like to perfectly follow me. This is what it looks like to perfectly reflect the character and the glory of God. If you're a human being that is completely living your life the way that God calls you to, this is what it will be. But it's aspirational. It's not a thing that practically we're gonna get to. Now that doesn't mean we give up, we'll deal with that, but we have to recognize the fact that this is something that's pretty well beyond what we're capable of doing. Uh, Augustine, who's a pastor in, in North Africa 1,600 years ago, said this, it's the perfect rule or pattern of Christian life, a new law in contrast to the old. So it's a pattern, right? Like this is sort of the structure, this is the direction that we need to go, even as we acknowledge that we're gonna fail. The thing is, is when we read this, the same way that we read everything in the Bible, we have to view it through the cross. We have to understand that the starting point for our faith isn't accomplishing the Sermon on the Mount. The starting point for our faith is the cross. And so the fact that we're all sinners, that we fail the holy standard that God has set up, shouldn't really be a shock for us if this is not our first time in church. Like that, that's a part of what Christianity says. Like we can't do this on our own. And whatever the standard is, if God sets up a standard of perfection and holiness, we're gonna fail because we're fallen human beings. And so the entire structure of what we believe acknowledges the fact that we're not gonna be able to accomplish this. So let's start the Sermon on the Mount by thinking through the cross. Ephesians chapter two says this, starting in verse four. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast." So if we start off with the Sermon on the Mount, like I'm gonna do that checklist, I'm gonna accomplish it, and that's gonna make God love me, we miss the point. If we start with the cross and we say, I am a sinner, I am gonna fail at the standard that God set up, let me turn to the grace of God. That's the point. <laughs> right, like twice in that section, Paul says, it's by grace that you're saved. You didn't check the list off, Jesus checked the list off. So Jesus, who was God, who told us this standard, right? He was God, he came in the flesh as a human being. He died on the cross because he knew that we weren't gonna be able to accomplish it. And he said, somebody has to pay the price for those sins. So Christ's death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, was the thing that satisfied our debt. We're wrong, we're in sin, Jesus took that punishment on us. And so as a result of Jesus' death, if we come to him in faith and we say, Jesus, I can't meet the standard that God set up, I'm gonna fail at that every single time, I need your righteousness. Then Jesus comes and says, of course, you can have my righteousness, I'll take your sin, that goes on the cross, and now you can live in a relationship with me, you can come to heaven when you die, you can have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, like all those things are the result of we have this relationship with God because of what Jesus did, it's grace. And so I would challenge you this morning, if you've never made that decision, if you've never come to Jesus and said, I can't meet the standard of God's expectation, I need you, then I would challenge you to do that this morning. Because if you don't do that, then the rest of what's gonna happen is, I'm gonna fail at this, right? Like, there's no point where you're gonna be so successful at achieving God's standard that you're gonna be able to go to heaven, that you're gonna be able to say, well, I, I come to God as an equal because I'm perfect as well. That's never gonna happen. 
Again, Bob Bounce describes it this way. The kingdom on the mount is a character sketch of those who have already entered the kingdom and a description of the quality of ethical life which is now expected of them. In this sense, it is the true essential Christianity. So now that I've come to Jesus, I acknowledge the fact that I can't do this. He gives me the Holy Spirit. I now have the ability to start moving in this direction. And as I live my life, I'm more and more and more conformed to the standard that got set up. Not that I can automatically punch it out, but the Holy Spirit gives me the power to actually move in that direction. And so the Sermon on the Mount is, in a lot of ways, the direction that we ought to be moving if we actually are trying to follow Jesus. So as we go through this series, here's my challenge. You need to start being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Because you're going to sit here and you're going to hear expectations that Jesus has for you and you're going to say, I can't do that. And I'm supposed to be doing that. And so it, it requires a good dose of humility and say, okay, Holy Spirit, if this is the thing that you want to work on, then this is what we're going to work on now, right? But that means that I have to admit, it's not just that I'm a sinner in the abstract sense, like, yes, I have sinned in the past, but like staring our sin in the face and being like, this is God's standard and I miss it. I can't do it. That's, that's the starting point. That's where we have to be. And I say that because as people have studied the Sermon on the Mount, there seems to be this enormous temptation to figure out a way to not be accountable for what Jesus says. Like, everybody's got a reason that it's not on them. And I say them, I mean, I want a reason why it's not on me, right? Like, this standard is impossible. I can't meet it. How can I figure out how God's gonna, you know, I don't want to shift this and not make it my fault, but I want God to love me in my sin and not, I don't want to have to worry about repentance or changing my life. I don't want to have to do work to conform to him. So I'm going to figure out a way that this doesn't apply to me. Rather than just say, yep, I'm a sinner. I need the grace of God in order to fix this. I want to figure out how this is pointed at somebody else. And so the question is, is how do we sort of take Jesus seriously when he's talking about this kind of thing? Okay. So I say that in the abstract, right? So let's get a little bit more practical. How many of you have had at some point in your life a Schofield reference Bible? Come on, really? There's only like 12 of you? Okay, there's probably more. You guys don't want to admit it. I understand. Now, Cyrus Schofield, great man of God, great, like did a great job studying, right? I had a a Schofield study Bible. It was the 67 edition. It smelled like my grandpa's basement, right? Bonded leather, great Bible. Here's my problem with Schofield. His commentary on Matthew chapter five. The Sermon on the Mount in its primary application gives, is, gives neither the privilege nor the duty of the church. These are found in the epistles. Schofield says, this isn't your problem. You don't have to do this. So there's three traps that I wanna talk about. This is the first one. The first trap is Jesus wasn't talking to me. This isn't my problem. Jesus was talking to somebody else. So for Schofield, and for maybe some of us too, I'm not like, there's, there's a theological, you know, channel that some of us have lived in that would say that this is fine, right? The Sermon on the Mount is for another time when Jesus is actually in charge of the world, physically sitting on his throne. That's when we're gonna study, we're gonna have the Sermon on the Mount. It's a bad understanding for a lot of reasons. If you disagree with that, you can email me. We can have that back and forth. I, I would love to have that conversation with you. 
The thing is, is naturally the Sermon on the Mount is really difficult. And so what I want to do is say that it doesn't apply to me. So I figure out a way, either theologically or practically, so that Jesus is talking to somebody else. I don't have to follow it. That's their problem. The problem with that is that you're saying that you're a follower of Jesus and you're intentionally ignoring something that Jesus specifically said. That doesn't work real well. Right? Like if I seriously want to follow Jesus, I have to say, okay, that's what Jesus said. This is the direction I need to move. I don't get to sort of pass that off and say, oh, that was for somebody else. That's for Israel. That's for the millennial kingdom. That's, that's for this other guy. That's, no, that's not it. Jesus said it. I need to take that seriously. So that means that as we're preaching, don't elbow the person next to you and be like, see, Jesus said. Like, no, it's you. That's the starting point. The second trap Jesus didn't mean all the time, right? Like Jesus meant we should follow him some of the time. So think about the separation of church and state. The original intent of the separation of church and state is to keep the government out of the church. That was the original point. And now it's sort of become, let's keep the church out of the government, which I understand that desire if you're, you know, not a person of faith. However, practically what that works into is I follow Jesus on Sunday for a little bit and I do all the other stuff the rest of the week because the things that Jesus calls us to are really not that practical six days a week. Yeah, five and a half. We'll give them part of Saturday, right? Like, but we, we don't want to admit that the things that Jesus calls us to are things that we need to actually be doing. So, you know, I flip back and forth between like, okay, I can follow Jesus on Sunday and I can be meek and I can be humble and I can be obedient. And then on Monday, that doesn't work. I can't cut the business deals that I need to and love my neighbor. I can't do both of those at the same time. So I'm just gonna say, I'm gonna ignore what Jesus said so I can do what I think I need to, right? You can't bring your church ethics to a political fight. Well, maybe you should. Maybe you shouldn't be in that political fight to begin with if you can't bring your church ethics. But we don't want to do that. So we sort of separate out, this is my, my world time. This is when I, my ethics that I believe follow. And then the stuff about Jesus, we'll deal with that on Sunday. And I don't really want to mix those two. So we pick our spots. We're like, okay, I'm going to obey here, but I'm not going to obey here. I'm going to kind of do it when I feel like it. The third trap is, this is the really arrogant one. <laughs> I know what Jesus really meant, <laughs> right? Like Jesus said this, but let's be honest. He didn't mean all of that. He meant some very specific parts of that. And I get to pick and choose which ones actually apply to everybody else. And then as a result of that, we're like, because I know the parts that really apply, that are really important, I'm a better Christian than you are, right? Like I picked which rules Jesus was serious about and I follow those rules and you don't follow those rules. You follow a different one because you pick different ones and then and now I'm the better Christian. And so there's a whole, a whole attitude of self-righteousness that comes along with this. And the end result is I'm, I'm not actually humble. I'm not actually meek. I'm not actually trying to follow Jesus. I'm just choosing the righteousness that's easy for me to follow and then I blame everybody else that they can't meet my standards. And some communities um, are very serious about like being pure in heart, right? So they're like, we're gonna go, we're gonna be separated from everybody else, we're gonna be really pure in heart. And they ignore the part where Jesus says, let your light shine. They're just like, no, the important part is the pure in heart, the light shining part, less important. Or maybe I'm, I'm really good at, at loving my neighbor and giving to the poor, but that whole thing about being holy, mm, I'm not really gonna be that. Like, that's not a thing for me, I'm just gonna do this other piece. 
So I skip the parts where I don't like and I do the parts that I do like. And so I pretend that I'm doing a great job and I'm self-righteous because, gosh, I'm doing all the things that Jesus told me to and he loves me more than everybody else. And the end result of all of these things is that we create excuses to not pay attention to what Jesus actually taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Like we figure out a strategy for us to be able to ignore parts of it. Like I said, this is Jesus that's teaching. I don't have permission to skip parts of it or pretend parts of it aren't important. This is actually what he said. And so it's, it's my responsibility as a person that's trying to follow Jesus to say, I need to try and live the way that Jesus called me to do. Acknowledging that I can't and that I need the Holy Spirit and I need the grace of God all the time. But I have to be able to acknowledge that this is what the standard is supposed to be. So, first question. What are some reasons I give myself for not taking Jesus seriously? What are some things in my mind where I'm like, I don't have to obey Jesus because of these things. I don't have to really listen because I've got this other thing going on. And I say that because it, it varies for all of us. We, we all fall into some of those traps some of the time, right? It's either I can't do that here, I don't want to do that here, or that doesn't apply to me, or I can figure out a way to avoid that. I don't want to take Jesus seriously all the time, so I find out my excuses. And then on the tail end of that, what are some things that Jesus said that I choose to ignore? Right? Like as we read through this, there's going to be some things that are going to smack you in the face. And you're going to be like, I do not do a good job of this. And the temptation is always going to be, I'm going to ignore that. I'm going to focus on the ones that I'm good at. Whatever my natural tendency is, I'll, I'll do those things. And I won't worry about the things that I'm really bad at. And this has to be an ongoing question. It has to be an item of prayer because what happens is we, we read those verses or we see those things and we're like, okay, I'm bad at that. What's my next step? And we want to just skip it. We want to just say, okay, well, I'm bad at that and I'll maybe write that in my journal for today and then I won't focus on that anymore. And what we ought to be saying is if this is a thing that Jesus calls me to do and I don't do it or I'm bad at doing it, I need to some practice, then it has to be a habit. We have to work on getting better at that or else what happens is we don't get better at it. Right? And so we have to think this through. We have to say, okay, what does Jesus call me to do that I ignore? What does Jesus say that, that I try and give myself excuses for not paying attention? And I need to make that uh, a part of my prayer life, a part of my repentance, a part of my conversation with Jesus on a regular basis. I'm bad at this, Lord. You've got to help me. I'm bad at this. I need your Holy Spirit to guide me in this area. Like whatever that is. It has to be an ongoing thing or else what happens is we just slide into this sort of lazy pick your, your command Christianity. All right, so now we can get to the point that I actually wanted to make for today. <laughs> I hit you guys pretty hard. None of us are holy. We'll, we'll deal with it for now. Um, the, the point that we actually want to make for today is that as we live this out, as we actually put the effort into living the way that Jesus calls us to, um, we can have influence on the rest of the world. And they're very specific, relatable re ways that Jesus talks about this that I think we're going to be able to connect to because they're sort of universal, right? Salt and light. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, it says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So I think whenever I hear this, it talks about salt in a lot of abstract ways, 
But the way that we experience salt on a day-to-day basis is the way that Jesus actually talks about, which is things taste salty, right? Like we know, we all know how good salt is. <laughs> like I don't have to stand up here and say like, this is salt and this is why you should like it. Like there's, there's a whole snack aisle at Kroger that tells me <laughs> we love us some salt, right? There's also a bunch of things that are not salty that we add salt to, like salt and chocolate. You're like, this is amazing, right? Like, there's a whole other level of extra salt that we go for. We love the flavor of salt. And Jesus' point is that if we're living for him, if we're living the way that we're supposed to, then our lives have the same positive flavor to people as Pringles, right? (laughs) Like you think about that and you're like, I could eat chips. I mean, let's be honest. There has probably been at least one point in your life where you have eaten a family sized serving of a salty snack. (laughs) Like we've all been there, right? Like whether it's popcorn or better made, like, I don't know what your particular, you know, version is, but we've all been that. Why? Because it tastes so good. Are the people that are around you looking at your Christianity and be like, man, I could spend all day with them. They're amazing. I love them so much. They're fantastic. Probably not, right? But if we were walking with Jesus the way that we're supposed to, if our lives truly reflected him the way that we know that they ought to, that would be the people's response. Like they would say, no, this person's amazing. This person's fantastic. I can't get enough of hanging around this person. And so that's Jesus' point. He said, if you're living for me, if you're living the way that God calls you to, then you're going to have a unique flavor that's gonna be different from the people around you that people are gonna appreciate you're gonna seem to be different. Also, the fact that you follow Jesus shouldn't leave a bad taste in people's mouth, right? You don't, you don't say like, oh, I'm gonna eat a whole bag of like this bitter, you know, whatever, I don't know. There's so many things that people love that I'm, I, the things that people hate, I don't know. But <laughs> the thing is, is it's not like this is something that's disgusting and gross and I'm gonna just eat more and more of this. Jesus is like, no, you're a Christian, you're living for Jesus, like you should actually leave a good flavor in people's mouth. They should appreciate you for who you are, for the person that you're trying to be. They should acknowledge that. Paul says it this way, he says, Uh, in Colossians 4, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Right, so the way that we talk should reflect the grace of God. The words that I speak should be a tribute to how much God loves me. And that should just be the natural result of living for Jesus, that our lives have a positive influence on the people around us, that people appreciate what we're trying to be, the direction that we're trying to move, that they look at us and they're like, man, that's a person that I I enjoy their company, I appreciate them. Even if personality-wise we don't get along, they're a good person. I appreciate what they're doing. And again, that's not to say that that's the thing that makes us holy. We have to understand that this is the grace of God. If we start with, I'm gonna punch this out, I'm gonna accomplish that, that's not gonna work. It has to be, I understand the grace of God is changing my life, and as I live that out, then people appreciate it. So I feel like that's a metaphor that we have a a good handle on, right? Like, we need to be salty. The second metaphor that Jesus uses is light. Um, Verse 14, he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. It gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So last week, Steve talked um, 
a little bit about Jesus being the light of the world, right? He made the point from Matthew 5, 16, um, and Matthew refers back to, to Isaiah 9, and it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. And so the point of this is that when Jesus comes into the world, he's the light. He's the one that we understand the world by. He's the one that helps us see what reality is. Steve also had a great story about him walking in darkness. If you go to YouTube, it's at the 32-minute mark. I highly recommend it if you weren't here last week. It's my favorite. The point is, is that Jesus is the light of the world. And so Jesus is the one that helps us understand reality and the way that we ought to live. Right? And so we have to have light. Everything that we do requires light. I was at the gym this week and the power went out at the gym. It was the worst experience. <laughs> like there's 50 guys in the locker room and everybody's got their phone out and you're like looking through your gym bag and you can't find your socks because there's no light, right? Like it's a really basic understanding of we need light in order for our lives to work at all. That's, that's just the way that it is. Like we have to see, we have to be able to, to know what we're doing. We have to understand those things. And Jesus brings that to us. As people that follow Jesus, Jesus is the one that shows us this is the way that life works. This is the way that things are practically. Jesus spoke to them in, in John 8, 12. It says, again, Jesus spoke to them and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Can we get them all? Can we get the back ones too? Sorry, I didn't tell you guys that one. <laughs> all right. So we're going to see if this works. Can we get the side ones too? Come on, man. All of them. All of them, all of them. Okay. Metaphorically, that's Jesus, right? Okay. Metaphorically, just metaphorically. So I'm seeing up here, it's fairly dark. It's not as dark as I hope, but it's still fairly dark. Okay. We can all see this, right? And I can see really well in front of me. That's, that's not up for debate, right? Like this light is not as great as the lights overhead, but it's better than no light at all. If it's completely dark in here, you guys would all be paying a lot more attention to this, right? So this is Jesus, metaphorically. I'm not Jesus. I just want to point that out. Like that's, that's separate for me. But what it is, is we're supposed to be, can I get this? I don't know how this is going to work. I should have practiced this a lot more. Can I get, oh, there we go. All right. So really I'm supposed to be the mirror right? Like, I'm not Jesus. We understand that. I'm supposed to be a reflective piece of the light that Jesus brings. Now, a mirror is not a great one, and obviously Jesus is a better light than this one. But at the end of the day, people need to be able to look at me and see the reflected light that Jesus brings, right? Like, they have to be able to say, okay, they can't see Jesus. Jesus isn't standing there in front of them. They can see me, and they can see the fact that I'm reflecting the light of Jesus. And so I become the light that's in the world. Like that's, that's the way that Jesus is actually doing it. We can keep going. Thank you guys. <laughs> I sprung that on them this morning. Uh, <laughs> the thing is, is the point of our, of our lives is that we need to be reflecting the light that Jesus brings. We have to understand that like Jesus is there. He's the light of the world, but people can't necessarily see him. And so my life has to be pointing people back to the light of the world. I'm not the one that brings light to the world. I'm not that good, but I can point people to Jesus. And as, as I follow Jesus, as my character more and more reflects him, then suddenly people are like, oh, Jesus is the one. So we talked 
we talked a little bit about how we need to rely on the Holy Spirit in order for this to happen. That's essentially how we grow spiritually. Now I wanna talk a little bit about how we show the love of Jesus to the world. So we just said salt and light. So we need to be salty. We need to be having the character where people can tell that we're connected to God. We need to have a light where we point people back to Jesus. That's sort of the basis of how we need to live our Christian lives. And so when Jesus talks about this, he kicks this off with, blessed are the meek, right? Like that's one of the phrases that's in the Beatitudes. So the whole thing is we need to be meek, we need to be humble, we need to reflect the love of Jesus, we need to be like Jesus was. But we need to show everybody that. But then we get after this section, and there's a whole big chunk about practicing our religion in a way that's not showy. Right? So if you've got your Bibles, I didn't get a verse for this, but if you've got your Bibles, in, in chapter 6, verse 1, Matthew sa- or Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father that's in heaven. And so Jesus says, you need to be meek, you need to be humble, you need to show my love to the world, and you need to be very careful about trying to show off your righteousness, which leaves us in a little bit of a trap. Because people are supposed to recognize that I'm following Jesus, without me trying to show off. And I think that that's a struggle. <laughs> because people have to see, people have to understand that this is the direction that I'm moving, but I can't sort of be showy about it. I can't be trying to demonstrate like, oh, I'm such a good Christian, I'm, I'm so great, right? Like, there's a line there, and, and it really starts with the attitude of humility. If we're saying humbly, by the grace of God, this is the direction that I'm trying to move, then that's gonna be helpful. As soon as we start to be like, I've got the answers. Let me tell you about how Jesus is uh, picked me in order to show you his love. Like then that suddenly starts to get a little bit sketchy. So think of it this way. Jesus says, be salty, right? And so being salty doesn't mean that you have to see the salt. You're supposed to taste the salt, right? There's an appropriate way for salt to impact your life. So I don't go to my coworkers and announce very loudly on Saturday night when we're way behind, like, I can't work overtime tomorrow, I have to be in church. Like, probably not the right solution. How about instead, you come to your coworkers and you're like, listen, I love you guys, let's figure this out, and by the way, the rest of your work ethic should reflect the fact that you care about them, that you love them as people. Right? And so suddenly at work, it's not about me announcing the fact that I'm a Christian. It's about the fact that my actions actually demonstrate the fact that I love people, that I care about them the way that Jesus does. Right? It's a different approach. So if after, after church, you go to Red Robin, right? Salty fries, very good, bottomless fries. You go to Red Robin. I'm not saying don't do this, but if your entire Christian wish, witness is how loudly and publicly you pray, you might have to reconsider that. Maybe you should be very polite to your server. Maybe you should try and make her day. Maybe you should tip her well. That's showing her that Jesus loves her as an individual rather than just like, I'm a Christian, let me pray really loud, and then being a jerk to her. That's the exact opposite of what Jesus called you to, right? Like, you're not supposed to do your righteousness to show it off. You're supposed to actually just live it out. The point is, is that if we're gonna actually have an impact on the world, then it has to be in ways that are appropriate and in ways that are helpful, right? Light doesn't, we don't turn on the light and the light has to announce like, all right, here I am guys, I'm coming in, you guys are gonna be able to see now. No, the light's just there, it's on. The nature of light is that you can see. 
right? That's just a natural part of it. It doesn't have to announce itself, right? With salt, you're like, do you actually like the salt that's on the pretzel, the big white salt that everybody can tell? Does everybody like, like that salt when you stare at it? No, when you're staring at it, it has the exact same impact as sesame seeds, which is none at all, right? Like, you eat your hamburger, you're like, oh, there's sesame seeds on the top. You don't notice that. You look at the salt on the pretzel, and if you just look at it, it doesn't matter. It's when you put it in your mouth and actually eat it, you're like, oh, I like that pretzel. It's salty, right? You don't, seeing the salt doesn't make a difference. It's actually tasting it. Salt has a way of saying, like, I'm here without actually being public and announcing itself. So we don't change the world with these huge grand gestures. We don't change the world by being loud and obnoxious about the fact that like, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus, everybody pay attention to me. Like, no, you change the world by actually showing the character of Jesus in the way that you choose to live your life. We're not supposed to withdraw, we're not supposed to hide, we're supposed to actually be involved in a way that's normal, that, that reflects the fact that I follow Jesus. It's supposed to be a natural thing. It's supposed to be the way that I choose to live my life. So Jesus says things like, be merciful, be humble. So that means that in my life, I don't announce I'm merciful and humble, I just do those things. Right, like I show people like, I care about you and I'm not gonna try and extract every penny out of you because I'm merciful and that's the way that Jesus calls me to be. Not that I announce that necessarily, but I, I act that way. And so people understand it through that. And, and the way that we change the world doesn't seem from the outside or to the rest of the world like it's actually gonna make an impact, right? Jesus says, turn the other cheek. You're like, if someone's yelling at you, turning the other cheek does not win you the argument. And in our brains, we're just like, I have to win this argument. I have to win this fight. This has got to be the right. I have to be right. I have to prove that I'm right. And Jesus is like, no, you act the right way. And whether or not you win or lose the argument, you just act the right way. And in the end, what happens is your character is the thing that wins. Not the argument, just your character. It's not... It doesn't look life-changing. It doesn't look like it's gonna be the one thing that wins. But in the end, we're actually following Jesus the way that he called us to, and, and that is the thing that changes the world. Because it's not about the big stuff, it's about the little interactions, me being the salt and the light wherever I go, whether it's at work, at school, at the grocery store, wherever it is, I reflect the character of Jesus. And suddenly people are like, oh, that person is different. I can, I can change the world that way. My first application question here is this. How can I better reflect the light of the world? What's the thing that Jesus calls me to do that I need to do a better job of? How can I better point people to his character? Not in a loud, public, obnoxious display, but how can I actually just be a person that points people to the character of Jesus? That means being humble, being prepared to, to listen. That means loving people where they're at, regardless of how they treat me. And then the other question I have here is, how can my life give people a little taste of heaven? Right? If Jesus is, if, if salt is the thing, if that's the thing that people need to taste, how does my life help people taste who Jesus is? Like, I have to reflect Jesus. I have to live my life in a way that people look at me and say, you know what? He is actually like Jesus. He does actually love people. He does actually care about people. That's supposed to be that I do it. And so they understand who Jesus is based on my character. 
I think for some of us, we've seen people do the really big religious thing, and it's kind of gross, right? People that are, are public with their faith, and then we discover that they've got these big sins that they were hiding, and we see that, and we're just like, ah, I don't like that. And the answer is not walk away from Jesus. The answer is that's not what Jesus said to do, right? Like Jesus calls us to actually just be salt and light. Don't be big, don't be public. You don't have to show off how amazing you are. You just have to follow Jesus. And so that's how we're supposed to be living our lives. That's how we influence the world. That's how we change people's mind about who Jesus is. It's not by the big public stuff. It's by actually living it out. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the fact that we don't have to be a specific type of personality or a specific type of obnoxious in order to show that we love you, that we can just live the things that you've called us to do, that we can be like you in the ways that you call us to and, and demonstrate your love to the world. I pray that you would help us to be people that are salty, that when our, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers interact with us, that they would appreciate the fact that our character is being formed by you, that they would recognize your love in our lives, that they would respond to the fact that we share that with the world, uh, that it wouldn't be about us, but it would truly be about you. We pray this in your name.